Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Reproducibility. I'm joined by Amy Auburn and Sophia Crivell and a special guest, uh, Katia Dharma. Um, Katia is the CEO and co-founder of Prolific Academic, um, which is a pretty awesome tool to connect researchers with online participants um, with a lot of control over the quality of the research that you can do. Um, hi, Katia, how are you doing? Hi, uh, I'm great, thank you. Excellent. How are you guys? Good. How's Amy? <laughs> oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to – which will probably be good because I'll, I'll shut up a bit. Um, no, I'm – yeah, I'm, I'm really well. Uh, it's kind of sunny, kind of thundery in Oxford. So, yeah, it's, it's sunny at the moment, so that's nice. Uh, how are you doing, Sophia? Uh, yeah, I'm well as well. I'm uh, also a bit tired, but uh, for much less glamorous reasons than you, I think. Um, just, you know, finishing things. In work, 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 da, work, da, work, da, work, da, work, da, work, 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 work. Okay, Sam, <laughs> do you want to? <laughs> uh, so I think a lot of people would like to hear your perspective on prolific. Um, for my, my take on it was that I had heard of very little about it until a few years ago. There was a lot about MTurk at the time and how it was a little bit awful, at least for some purposes. And then I was introduced to prolific and quite liked it. Um, so I wonder if you can kind of tell us a little bit about the prolific itself and the kind of journey to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. First of all, it's really nice to speak to you guys. Um, yeah, we started prolific about five years ago. Back then I was in the first year of my PhD at the university of Sheffield and I had a really hard time finding participants for my research. So I turned online and obviously there was uh, MTurk, but back then MTurk only had uh, US American participants and, um, but I needed British participants. So it couldn't really deliver what I needed. And I also didn't quite like the user interface and user experience. And then I basically teamed up with my uh, friend Phelan um, who was doing a DPhil uh, at Oxford um, in computational biology. And basically, we realized that uh, we had quite complementary uh, com skills. So I had some insight into research and psychology and research methods, and he knew how to code. So he created uh, an initial uh, website, basically, that would help researchers find participants. And to be honest, it was more of a fun side project at the beginning. So we did not set out for this to be some, you know, company or, you know, startup. But then we actually realized that uh, most of my colleagues and my broader network in, in psychology and research had the exact same problem. They wanted to find participants, but they couldn't. And so we saw a lot of demand. And then over the years, we've been doing a prolific part-time alongside our PhDs. Um, and it kept on growing, basically, uh, faster and faster, uh, up until the point where about two years ago, we couldn't keep up with the demand anymore. So we needed to start hiring. And it was incredibly uh, challenging because, you know, doing a PhD and basically then running 
um, a small company, which is what it has become over time, um, was just really, really hard. We can actually talk about that if you like, about you know how that went. <laughs> There's a lot of things I actually learned from this, I think. Um, yeah, and then, so basically today we're a team of uh, 14, so 12 full-time and two uh, part-time people, well, freelancers. And yeah, now that Phelim and, Phil and I um, have finished our PhDs last year, uh, we're doing prolific full-time simply because it's really great fun. It feels really meaningful, like we're helping out a lot of researchers and it feels like we're having a lot of impact, um, which is quite different from how my PhD felt. Um, I actually listened to some of your past podcast episodes and, you know, a lot of people might be, uh, a lot of psychology researchers might be leaving academia because they don't feel there's enough impact and meaning. And so this is something I feel I'm getting from Prolific a lot. So I'm really enjoying this whole startup journey. That's awesome. Um, could you, I guess for, so for the researchers that might be interested in kind of running, running these studies online, could you give an overview for them about uh, kind of how they can get involved and benefit? Yes, um, it's quite simple. Um, so the first thing to understand is that we don't offer any survey software or experimental software. So you would have to create your survey or online experiment um, using a different tool, let's say Qualtrics, SurveyMonkey, or Gorilla, which is an amazing uh, Cambridge startup actually, that allow you to do quite sophisticated uh, behavioral science online, stuff like reaction time, experiments. And so you'd have to create your survey or experiment online first, and then you come to Prolific with your URL that links back to that experiment and you need to specify how many participants you'd like to recruit, uh, how much it's going to take them uh, per person, G basically give an estimate, um, specify how much you'd like to pay each person uh, and also specify any target demographics. So let's say if you wanted to find, you know, 130 to 40 year old female engineers in the UK, that should be possible and all you need to do is basically specify in advance and then our system will actually tell you how many eligible participants there are so it's very transparent you know in advance what we can deliver or cannot deliver so you don't need to you know invest yourself too much into it before you actually know if, if it's even you know fit for purpose um yeah and we have a minimum reward per hour for participants. One of the things that I found really appalling about MTurk is um, what people have called kind of the, the slave labor and the exploitation of people on the platform. It's just so deregulated. And because Amazon doesn't really care about any, you know, ethical standards or setting rules for how to treat the research participants. So anybody can do whatever they want. But as a result, it's, it's a race to the bottom where Turkers often try to kind of cheat and game the system to get access to, you know, studies or, or as they call it, hits. Um, and it just does not create good dynamics. The incentives are not aligned. So we're trying to solve that at Prolific 
by stipulating that researchers pay at least, uh, I think it's five pounds an hour. Um, it's just to, you know, make sure that participants feel appreciated and valued, uh, you know, rewarded fairly for their time. So that's something to keep in mind. But I think it has the effect, and in fact, we do have some evidence in that direction as well. It has the effect of participants providing great data. They're extremely engaged, and they enjoy participa participating in research on Prolific. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why our platform has been growing and why researchers quite enjoy using it. Yeah, that was very much my my experience a few years ago. I I sort of expected to to have to throw away a lot of data just purely because you'd end up with people half-heartedly kind of filling in the questionnaires and actually doing the task itself. Um, so I was quite surprised that the vast majority of people were actually quite engaged, um, which was nice. Um, so what what's the process that um, potential participants go through to kind of, I guess, essentially to make sure that they're not bots? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, so we have a range of different checks, and I guess it's three types of checks. So one is technical checks. And I'm not going to give too much away because it's part of it. It's a little bit proprietary. Um, but on a basic level, for instance, if somebody is has an IP address that's located in China in one moment and in 10 minutes they're suddenly located in the US, that suggests that they're, you know, might be using a VPN. And so we, we basically check for that, right, if you're using VPNs. Yeah, typically we don't allow that. Um, so we have a range of technical checks and also stuff around um, digital fingerprints. Then a second type of check is um, kind of behavioral checks. So for instance, if participants give answers that are internally inconsistent or implausible, right? Let's say a simple example would be someone is male and, and pregnant and of course, of course there's, there might be, of course, a corner case where that's possible even. And maybe that's not the best example, but... Um... Well, it's like, it's like in, in my research area, it's hilarious because I look at children filling out questionnaires and there's something called mischievous responding, which is they just don't care. Like it's during school hours <laughs> and they're just having a bit of fun. So I think some research, and, and I, I should find it for the show notes, I don't know if I can, but somebody once told me there was research showing that half of the people saying they're missing an arm actually then exactly. said that they actually have an arm, like <laughs> stuff like, it's like some things that are completely, or like that drug use is extremely overreported, and so they put in like <laughs> fake drug names. Exactly, <laughs> stuff like that. There's just many things you could do to actually weed out people who are just like lying, or you can check for biases as well, like stuff like yes bias. If everyone just clicks yes to every single question, that's just a red flag. And there's a lot of stuff like that you can check for. Um, mm. And then the final one is a feedback from researchers. So we actually just implemented a new feature where researchers can directly report through the interface back to us if they find any participants or any data suspicious. Um, so we definitely listen to what researchers 
say to us as well to try to improve the system overall and create really good feedback loops as well. Mm. That's cool. I like, that. like, but you must also get quite a few critical voices because you know we've seen uh, Kai Zassenberg recently in the European Social Psychological Journal write about this that these quests for higher power are causing people to to simplify experiments and just turn to places like Prolific and MTurk. And there's quite a lot of senior people who uh, think that you collect lower quality data and that it might not be having a positive influence. So what would you say to those? What would be the exact criticism there? Would it be towards researchers' behavior or actually towards the platform like Prolific itself? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question because I guess it's 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 twofold, isn't it? That one of the criticisms, and I think that's what's been going on for ages, is that oh, researchers aren't measuring behaviors anymore. We're just measuring questionnaires and and the simplification of experimental styles um, because we need more participant numbers, which is probably the um, on more of a criticism of the researchers' side. But then having heard you talk on other occasions and, and having questions from senior researchers, I think some of them were critical and they just can't believe that data from an online source could be as good as data from that your undergrad or a graduate student collects. So maybe if you can give an answer to the latter. Yeah. So my answer to that would be, we just need to be real about what the data then means that you collect online, right? Online behavior is a valid type of behavior. And I suppose when you write up your research for publication, it's then critical to have to discuss the limitations and the caveats, right? And perhaps mm. that's really not done enough, actually, now that you're bringing this up. Yeah, I don't see a lot of people even differentiate between data collected online versus offline. It's a really great point, actually. I guess it's a problem across, you know, we don't talk about our samples being weird, you know, very unrepresentative. We don't often talk about that we're, for example, we do research mainly on Western populations and maybe that just ties into us needing to be more transparent about how we generalize. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the problem is there that we just love generalizing <laughs> as psychologists. Yeah. Uh, I tested this in a sample I mean, and now um, it's true for everyone. In theory, wouldn't um, yeah. using online platforms enable people potentially to, to not test uh, as many weird people or at least to move away from um, just um, focusing on students that they have easy access to? Yeah, that's also a great point. I think we're discussing kind of a range of different biases here, right? So one one group of biases is the one around weird samples that you just mentioned, Amy. But but I guess the, the offline versus online distinction is yet another type of potential bias. And I, I tend to agree with Sophia that actually collecting data online is liberating you to access a lot more different people. And it can never be perfect, right? There's always, I mean, no sample is ever truly representative because it depends on how you define representativeness. But I, I guess for me, the key point about prolific is that it helps you reduce the bias, right? It's relatively less biased than a traditional undergraduate Oxford sample might be. 
we're all nodding. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess the, um, I, I see that, that it, you get probably more diverse participants. Um, I guess probably you, you're still planning to do research or maybe later on when the company grows, actually looking at whether the quality of responses are the same as if I would sit down five people in a room to take my questionnaire. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it depends on the nature of your research question. If you really would like to do qualitative, in-depth research, then yes, maybe it's better just to actually beat the people directly. And you can, in fact, these days, there's great software to meet people online as well. So it's not the same, but it approximates a real-life interaction. But if your research question is a lot more quantitative, right, you want to aggregate a lot of data and analyze it across a lot of people. Um, yeah, it, it basically really depends on your research question, um, how you want to analyze the data. Um, I guess theorizing will be critical too. If, if you're researching online behaviors, let's say, I don't know, like maybe something related to Twitter behavior and you want to better understand why people do certain things on Twitter. And you can, of course, go to Twitter and ask people directly, but it might be tricky to follow up in a systematic way and also over time. And that's where Prolific could help, right? You could try to pre-screen for Twitter users and then do some more in-depth research. And it would be relevant because then, the, then the context is online. And so it probably makes sense to collect the data online. Yeah, I think that's where, um, so I guess from, from my perspective, I ran a, a behavioral study using Prolific, which was interesting um, more than anything because it was a response time-based task. So you're kind of in that position where I think there especially you really do have that trade-off between, yes, I need many more participants, but also am I potentially sacrificing experimental control or um, or the kind of ideal lab conditions for these kind of tasks. I mean, that task's awful in the first place, but... <laughs> let's not go on let's, to that one. <laughs> um, but I, I guess because that's where I can maybe see the argument that data quality might be reduced um, if you're sort of trying to ask certain questions or use certain paradigms. Whereas questionnaires, I imagine, mm. I'd be less worried mm. about, I guess. Yeah, do you, are most people on Prolific doing questionnaires? Like, what is the diversity of people that you have using the site now? And I don't know, have you had some really quirky sort of studies that have been tried to kind of run over your servers? Yeah, I think we have quite a diverse range of users. Um, we looked into it recently. So about 90% are actually scientific researchers. But we also have 10% of users who are from industry doing user research or, you know, user testing. Um, and so if you want to segment it further, I don't know the exact kind of stats, but it would range from, I think, mostly quantitative surveys. So, you know, questions, let's say, around political attitudes or economic experiments or social psychological questions or even linguistics. Um, yeah, it's quite diverse, I'd say. 
Um, and quirky experiments. I have to have a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just. I I I could just think that I don't know. I've been seeing on Twitter sometimes people being like, I wanted to have like a ten-person interactive study, and it couldn't run on prolific. And then you're kind of sitting there going like, Well, no, duh. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think. Do you do you find that most research are positive? towards the service or kind of what do you kind of get interacting with your I guess customers yeah I think most of them are quite grateful which is really nice and encouraging um I think the customers we have so far are probably a lot of them must be early adopters so people who just give it a shot and then like it and stick around um I haven't received that much criticism for it yet um and I suppose, you know, we're a tool of many. It's almost like uh, we're like a tool to do research and people then have to see how they can best make use of it. Um, and we will never be the only tool to collect data. You will always need other mechanisms, you know, like lab research. I don't think you can ever fully replace it like you guys talked about. Um, sometimes you just need to speak to people in person. And yeah, and I guess so, yeah, researchers are quite grateful, um, positive about it. They have lots of feedback for us that we're always happy to take on board and, and improve the platform. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think, my impression. Sorry, I'll, I'll, this is my last question. But you said a tool, and this, that made me really interested. Because so, naturally a tool means you're kind of just the thing that takes a researcher from A to B. Um, and, but I do feel like prolific has a sort of, you do try to have some sort of ethical framework, um, around, as you were saying, payment, you know, you're not yes. completely deregulated tool that everybody can use in any way they want. Um, and also you have been promoting, trying to promote things like open and transparent science. So do you feel like you just try to make make design the tool in the way you would want research to be done or do you tr try to kind of push researchers into the direction of what you think is is best or how do you see your tool design um, playing yeah. out yeah that's a fascinating question um because i suppose we do have a little bit of power there to design a system in a way that not just people in certain directions and the question is to what extent do we want to do that um I mean, the honest answer is that, yes, probably my personal views on science and open science have probably shaped how we've been doing a couple of things. So, for instance, we've been trying to help, uh, especially younger researchers, educate around open science. We have this best practice guide that anybody can check out in our support center um, that talks people through the different phases of the research process from, you know, how to ask research questions, to how to design studies, to how even a section on a little bit on analysis and also on theory development. Um, but we, we don't really enforce it upon anyone. It's really just um, to contribute to providing resources to learn about how to do science. Um, and, and, you know, what open science is all about. So questions around pre-registration and, you know, transparency. Yeah, we, we try to encourage people to learn about this, but I don't think uh, we're forcing anything as such. 
um, yeah, but, but it's great to reflect on for the future. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, at least one of the, the strengths or one of the things I quite liked about prolific using it is, um, is exactly is that kind of provision of resource as well. So it's not kind of just about kind of give us your research money. We'll give you data. It's a little bit more kind of we'll help you through it. Like the the fact that you've actually got a very active support team yeah. is extremely valuable. Yeah, shout out to our support anybody. team. Actually, they're doing such a fantastic job. Uh, yeah. How many people do you have on support at the moment? So it's currently a team of four. Um, yeah. It's so big. <laughs> How do you get from? Are you are you asking for a friend, Amy? Fourteen employees. Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Give me fourteen PhD students now. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, no, that's not the evil PI. I think I think Amy was being PI serious. Back in my head, that's just what we were, we were um, laughing at her. She was making a joke. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> So I guess maybe if we take a quick break now and then we'll hear more about that journey after the break. You are listening to Reproducibility, serving you discussion of important issues in science and psychology, one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at Reproducibility, rate us on iTunes and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over the next weeks, we will also release some specialty flavors, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um, we left off uh, before uh, Katya gives us a masterclass in going from PhD to 14 staff. Um, we would love to hear more about your experience um, in general, kind of shifting from, I guess, the pure academia quite early on, actually, in, in kind of your, your experience towards um, kind of running a startup and Doing both at the same time. Especially doing both at the same time. That sounds terrifying. Um, so, yeah, we'd love to more. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think we're lunatics to try to do both at the same time. <laughs> it's absolutely, what were we thinking? <laughs> but I guess it emerged that way almost out of necessity, um, like I described in the beginning. And then and we actually talked to some, you know, potential investors um, about a year into Prolific, and they all told us, quit your PhD and just focus on the startup. Um, but we just decided for ourselves that that's not for us, and we'd like to try to do both. And it would just mean for us that maybe then, you know, it would take a little bit longer to finish the PhD. But we were, we were so passionate about our scientific work, I think, that we didn't want to quit. So then we ended up doing both. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been difficult, basically, and challenging a lot of the time, as you can imagine. Uh, initially, it was just Phelan and myself stemming all of the work. So Phelan was doing all of the web development, which is sort out, you know, 
accounting and legal questions, incorporation, um, customer support. We were literally doing everything, wearing all the different hats that you can wear <laughs> in a way. Um, uh, let's see. And yeah, it didn't come without crises. I'll be honest there. Um, about halfway through everything, I had a bit of a crisis. It was just all a bit too much and I had to take out you know, take a little bit of time for myself. And I think in that process, I really learned about the importance of self-care. And that applies to anybody, not just people doing startups or PhDs or both. I mean, that's just equally true for any PhD student out there or any academic uh, out there. Uh, Self-care is so important. I've learned to much better set boundaries these days, I think. Uh, just be really clear with people. I'm not working after this time. I won't be available. That's just how it is. And I need that for everything to be sustainable. Um, yeah. I, felt, I think that was a huge insight for me, just like boundaries and self-care. What, what did you think is the thing you needed to learn most? You know, because the skill set is so different in a way. From the outside, at least. That's interesting. Um, the most. Yeah, I think I just didn't know much about business. So I just needed to get a grasp of, you know, business stuff, really. I think I'm a scientist in my heart. And I'm actually, I really care about it so much. I always thought I'm going to be an academic, a scientist in the long term. And then I got pulled into the startup world because I actually quite enjoy the, the fast pace and how efficient and effective the business world is. They don't waste any time, you know, they, they don't optimize as much as scientists or academics might. Um, they set clear goals and have great project management. So I find all of that so appealing. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, I think it's just like understanding the business world, how it operates. You know, how do you deal with lawyers? They just speak a completely different language. Sometimes it's hard to understand at all what they're saying. But then also to, to develop the courage to then just ask, you know, if I don't understand what the lawyer is saying, I'm just going to ask and not be ashamed or embarrassed. Yeah, I think that would be the area that I yeah, had to learn about the most. Do you find that um, that kind of skill set and experience carried back over to your academic work as well? Oh, um, yeah, I think in some ways it might have. I think I started being um, a bit more efficient and less of a perfectionist in the later days or the, the kind of final years of my PhD. I uh, just tried to not optimize, you know, the papers I was writing or my thesis even really um, try to just like be a bit more lenient you could spend endless time just perfecting your thesis tweaking words and sentences you know how it is with powerpoint presentations as well how there's just like a lot of people have a tendency to tweak and tweak and tweak and lose sight of the substance and i think doing a startup company in a, in a business basically taught me the kind of the 80 20 rule you might have heard of this that you know um, 20% of the effort can get you 80% of the way and most of the time that's good enough you don't really need more than that I appreciate however that in science sometimes of course details and rigor do matter 
So then you have to be really thoughtful about when it matters and when you're just being a perfectionist. Yeah, I think the not letting perfection be the enemy of the good. Exactly. Was always one that kind of spoke to me a little bit. Getting the thesis done and gone was <laughs> quite, Especially quite powerful as well. with the thesis. I mean, who's going to read it? Maybe two or three people ever. So to me, it was always clear as part of a PhD, I'm going to focus on writing papers because that's what was actually getting published in a journal and is publicly or, you know, well, maybe not publicly accessible, but more accessible. Um, and I was really trying to put the bare minimum of effort into my PhD. And I think that made a lot of sense um, for me. Yeah. So at what point in the process of, I guess, developing Prolific and making this transition between it being very much a kind of side project that you're interested in doing and it's sort of evolving, did you actually start kind of branching out and bringing in other people to kind of work on other aspects and I guess sort of focusing your efforts on your aspect of it and allowing other people to sort of take over other parts? Um, that was about, I'd say, about two years into it, maybe two and a half years into it, when we at some point just couldn't cope with, with customer support anymore. And it's quite remarkable how a lot of the customers that approach us, from their point of view, they're the only one approaching us. But then when we can't keep up with the support, they might get quite angry. And it was just really challenging for us. So it became clear we need to hire somebody to help us out. Uh, just purely in terms of the day-to-day -day emails we'd get from people wanting to set up a study or um, looking for certain target demographics. Um, yeah, it was just purely in terms of the demand from users, I think. But then also maybe there's a technical aspect to this where because of the demands, the website wasn't always very stable. And I apologize to everyone out there who's using Prolific if it sometimes, you know, crashes. Um, so we now have actually, how many? Five developers in total who work on that uh, quite passionately. So we're hoping to actually fix any of the bugs that are still uh, there. But yeah, it's basically out of necessity when you just can't keep up with it anymore and you feel that you need support. How do, how do you how do you deal with these sorts of I guess they're not they're not failures in a way that they're just bumps along the road, but I feel like in a company it, it feels like so much more because you have the financial pressures, you have people you're employing, you have customers, you know, if I, if my paper gets rejected, you know, I can be sad for a bit, but in the end, like the world hasn't changed that much, but for you, if, if things break or if the people are unhappy or your employees are unhappy, it's all kind of rests on, on you and, and your kind of partner in crime on, so how do you how do you how did you learn to deal with that? I guess. Yeah, I think a lot of it just has to be about attitude and mindset. So we're doing the best we can, given given our resources and constraints. Um, if we screw something up, or you know, if, if there's a problem, we can do our best to fix it and prevent it in the future. But I guess, yeah. 
I, I kindly ask people to have a little bit of patience, but we're really doing our best. And, um, and I guess then it's about self-compassion as well, uh, where you sh we shouldn't be beating ourselves up for anything. Um, right. Cause we ha have the best of intentions. So I think learning to forgive yourself quickly for any hiccups, I think is probably a good idea. Yeah. And I can, I can definitely attest to prolific being quite excellent at catching these mistakes. So I had a, a two part study run a few years ago and somehow the whitelist between the, the first and second part sort of broke which then resulted in maybe 150 people doing the second part without having done the first part, which, which was a bit of a sad thing. But then, I mean, you guys fixed it and kind of resolved that extremely quickly. And I was still able to collect everything on time with the intended participants. So that's good to hear. I don't know. So my experience was very positive in that regard. Yeah. So it's like, yes, there can be, I don't know, I, I'm assuming some minor glitch somewhere that just caused it, but then kind of you and your team went out of the way to fix it. And I think that's probably the, the most important thing. That's great. And I, I guess one of the things that really differentiates us from all the other platforms out there is that we actually own our mistakes and make up for it. So if this happened through a fault of prolific, in principle, we're willing to, you know, refund you or pay, you know, compensate for the data loss somehow. So we're actually happy to own the mistakes and make up for it. And make sure, yeah, you have a good experience. That's cool. Um, so I guess along the same lines as your kind of journey out of academia and into uh, kind of startup and I guess broadly industry, forget what terms we're using at the minute. Um, I see that Prolific has three positions open at the time of recording. Is this yeah. kind of reflective of developments within Prolific itself uh, in terms of kind of growing and doing new things? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we've actually, it's, it's really worth mentioning, we've been bootstrapping, which is a startup word for growing from revenue and not fundraising. Right. So we have not raised money from any investors to date. So we're kind of self-sustaining. And uh, the three roles you see currently advertised, um, they're part of that, basically. But in order to uh, accelerate our growth and increase the impact um, on the research world and try to make prolific as accessible as possible to anybody who needs to do research, if it's scientists or businesses or even governments potentially, um, we are planning to raise some money basically. So because you asked about um, future, I guess, ambitions and yeah, so we will probably be opening quite a few more roles later this year in all sorts of areas from, you know, development, front-end and back-end development, to customer support, to data science roles and uh, marketing roles. So we are quite ambitious, I think. We just would like to help as many researchers as possible. And I guess our vision for the platform is to be... Are you familiar with um, the term API or an API platform? 
Like, I know that an API is what you do, to, like, you log in. Like, if I want to get data from Twitter, I log into their API, but I just kind of see it as a virtual plug, and I have no idea how it works. <laughs> That's exactly right. So tell me I'm wrong. No, it's actually right, I think. It's basically... Um, a like a tool that lets you tap some system or site, right? Like a plug, as you call it. I mean, I'm not a technical expert, so I don't know the exact uh, definition. But uh, yeah, it lets you basically communicate between two systems. And our vision for Prolific is to build an API platform where anybody can come along and tap our participant pool to learn about people and how they feel think and behave um, and so I guess an API platform is something that developers will be really familiar with and we've actually asked ourselves the question um, should we be building all the different tools on top of Prolific's participant pool ourselves or should we empower other people and like developers and more technical people to, to just build on top of our pool themselves and we decided that for us it's important to empower people and make prolific more accessible. And also we'd never be able to predict what kind of types of, you know, what, what types of experiments uh, researchers would want to build. Um, we can't really predict it. So we'd rather give people the tools to build on top. Um, so, so what, what do you mean to build on top? Like sort of um, offer other services? Or? Um, so, Basically, we'll build an API platform, which will let um, researchers or, uh, you know, web developers build tools on top of Prolific. And so they can then tap our participant pool instead of us being the gatekeeper who kind of limits what people can do. Um, does that make sense? So you're like an, are you kind of like a temporary staffing HR agency and people can kind of like go and like take your, take the people that you're like keeping happy and like the, and, and yeah, I don't, uh, I've, yeah, I've lost my train of thought, but yeah, like I, I just, I didn't want to say you're like the zookeeper. So I was like, <laughs> it's, it's basically all about opening up prolific so people can build tools on top of it without needing necessarily our permission for every single thing. Mm. Um, it's kind of like the app store. Yeah. For, like okay, cool. cool. Also, another thing, just on a complete aside, is that when you were saying, always when we talk about industry, like, oh, Katya moved into industry, I always see people with hard hats, like <laughs> Katya going around your office. Now, like, that was more of a comment like than a question from Amy. <laughs> Which I think, I guess it makes it, I think we as academics have just such a weird sense of like what the outside world is like. <laughs> but it's yeah. It's funny that you're saying uh, that because I don't actually think I've ever left academia as such. Uh, I feel like I still have a toe in academia. I still actually work on some papers in my spare time because I'm just really passionate about the work. Um, and I'm not sure I ever fully want to leave it either I actually feel like you can do science or research very well outside academia too I mean you see Facebook and Google and various companies publish uh, papers in, in really good scientific journals these days so to me that suggests maybe our uh, idea of what science is and where it has to happen is maybe a bit too narrow 
think so. Um, so I guess unless Sophia or Amy have any major things, I think we're running out of time. So you're just academic superwoman. It's like, look at me doing all. Anyway, yes, no, I have no other ideas because I'm getting off on tangents again. <laughs> oh yes, I'm becoming oh, that senior person in the back. Ooh, the- with the 14 PhD students. <laughs> so one thing that we we kind of like to ask um, any guest that's on is kind of what advice they would give to other early career researchers and I guess for you especially it'd be kind of cool to hear what advice you would give to people that are maybe wanting to dip their toe into uh, a startup or more industry-based or maybe are trying to do something similar to you and kind of walk both walks I guess. Yeah um, there's a lot of stuff I could potentially say the one thing that springs to mind immediately for me is not to idealize academia you know, it's one way of doing things, but it's riddled with problems. And maybe I'd say it's great to try and cultivate some openness around how you can be doing research and what format and what system. Um, yeah, I'd love for people to be open-minded about that kind of stuff, right? You can have a fantastic career and it doesn't have to be within academia. Um, I feel like a lot of early career researchers really, really want just to stay in academia because they have this idea of doing science and being a professor. And I think I had that in the past. I, I idealized it myself, thinking that's my path and that's the only path for me. But I guess reality has forced me to be a little bit more open-minded. And I actually, I think I appreciate it now. That's nice. Uh, I think I enjoy the way things have unfolded. I really love the startup world. And actually, you, Amy, you, you mentioned earlier that it's so different from academia. I'm not even sure it is that different because in the startup world, unlike in the corporate world, you iterate really fast. You basically develop some assumption about something and you go get some data or some evidence if it's anecdotal or systematic empirical evidence that you draw your conclusion and then you iterate and carry on. So in a way, as I, that's actually called the lean startup approach. And in a way, that's a very scientific way of doing startups. And in that sense, it's actually quite aligned with my background and quite um, helpful. That's really cool. Um, well, I guess that's us just about out of time for this week. Um, if anybody would like to get in touch or have a look at Prolific itself. We'll post all the links and information in the show notes. Um, Get in touch and we will see everybody next time. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. No, thank you so much. It It was great.